Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome. I'm beyond excited to have you here. And if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. But whether you are a new friend or an old friend today, you and I get to hang out with Mark Sochin. Mark is an executive coach and partnership expert. He has successfully managed hundreds of strategic partnering initiatives, as well as mergers and acquisitions, and has grown revenue for clients such as Cisco, Microsoft, VMware, IBM, SAP, and Accenture, to mention only a few. Mark's unique gift is his experience on both sides of the table with an ability to successfully manage complex partner relationships. He has a passion for partnering and partner ecosystems and has worked with the quote-unquote big guys as well as with smaller companies and startups on how to build, fund, run, and sell businesses in the competitive and ever-evolving technology realm. Today, Mark is a managing director at CEO Quest where he coaches and consults with successful CEOs and execs on how to scale their company revenues faster. And in this episode, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, why you should consider strategic partnerships as one of your key growth activities and how you can identify and prioritize which strategic partners would be the most valuable for you and your company. Number two, what to avoid when you're negotiating contracts. And I want you to look out specifically for his points on exclusivity and intellectual property. And number three, I want you to look out for some key points that you need to make a partnership successful after the deal is signed. As you'll hear in the interview, specifically, I bring up the example of when I interviewed Kevin Harrington. In my research for Kevin, he tells this story about how he wanted to get an app with over a million downloads. And most people would think, okay, how do we market this? How do we get those million downloads? But Kevin Harrington specifically was like, why don't I just partner with Sprint? And so he reached out to the CEO of Sprint, Marcelo Claire, and they ended up forming a partnership where they had the app that he wanted downloaded pre-installed on millions of phones being sent out. So that is just the purest definition of thinking about multiplication, big opportunities, instead of doing things one by one. So I wanted to start thinking about more about how I can think more in multiplication. And I want to learn from some of the best in the world out there at this. And Mark's book was one of the top recommended ones. So I literally searched on Amazon, the strategic partnerships, and I found his book, The Art of Strategic Partnering, Dancing with Elephants, read it, loved it. And of course, I wanted to bring on Mark on the show so that I could share his insights with you. So I want you to think about this as you listen today how would things change if you could partner with some of the biggest players aka elephants in your space what would that do for you and your business because that's what we're going to talk about in today's conversation so please enjoy this incredible conversation with mark sochin if you had to pick between a making a ton of money B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mark, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. Hey, Brandon. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing fantastic. I've been looking forward to this all day. Um, so we have so much juicy content that we're going to dive into. I just finished reading your book, uh, re-reviewing your book for the second time just the other day. So I'm excited to dive in with you and share everything that I've learned with the audience. But before we dive into all the cool stuff that you've done with partnerships, I want to start with something that is earlier on in your career. So you partner with people like Cisco, Microsoft, IBM, all these cool things, but that's not where you started out, I'm assuming. And you had some people that helped you out along the way. So I would love if you have a specific story, um, I would love to hear about Jim Dryberg and uh, how he impacted you in your career. Oh, Jim Dryberg. Well, Jim Dryberg, um, uh, is and was my, was and is my CEO coach. Um, and he has been a he has a huge has had a huge impact on my life because uh, you know you're busy building your career and uh, you're just uh, working as hard as you can trying to do all the right things and get ahead. And at a certain point, you you need someone who's more experienced, who's been through uh, the same situations that perhaps you've been through, and be able just to have a a, a confidential one-on-one discussion, uh, you know, once a week or once a month, which is hugely impactful. Yeah. So is there, is there, how did you develop that relationship? Was it something that you kind of noticed him and you're like, this guy's awesome. I want to, I want to reach out to him or how did that initially start? Oh, well, it started with one of my board members when I was CEO of Partnerpedia, uh, Bill Lipson. And, uh, he was the one who knew and recommended and made the introduction to Jim Dryberg. And I'm very grateful to, uh, to, uh, to Bill Lipson for that introduction because it has been uh, life changing for me. Cool. I love that. Well, I always like starting with early influences or people that have helped you out on the journey because we can't all do it alone. (laughs) And as they can't say, you can't read the label from inside the jar. So whenever you have that outside perspective, I just thought I saw that you had mentioned him and uh, Hag Ferris inside of your acknowledgments in your book. And sometimes I always like to ask about those people that played pivotal roles in people's careers, because I found that uh, most people that I interview on the show, it's like there was one of those dominoes that led to incredible things or provided incredible insights and always like to kind of peel back uh, uh, the onion on other people that come on the show just so that I can kind of see some of the influences they had. So I appreciate you sharing. Um, unless you have anything about, about Haggy that you would want to say or a specific story about Jim. Yeah, I would like to mention Hag. I love that you're pulling out these names from my past. Hag first was one of the first mentors I had. Uh, he, a uh, successful uh, venture capitalist in Vancouver, Canada, uh, Ventures West, and also a successful angel investor, super angel investor. And, uh, you know, he just uh, brought a whole new world um, to visibility for me in terms of high tech startups, introductions, network, uh, incredible guy. Cool. Love that. Well, there you go. You get to get some some love to some people that have helped you out along the way. And so uh, let's dive into some of the foundational partnership concepts that you teach in the book. And I want to kind of um, I, I think I told this to you when I reached out to you initially, Mark, but um, this this concept of partnership is just so intriguing to me. And I interviewed Kevin Harrington on the podcast from Shark Tank. And one of the stories that he didn't tell it on the show, but I think I listened to it in his research is he wanted to get a million downloads on one of the applications that he created. And instead of doing it the traditional way of trying to find a million downloads, he developed a partnership with Marcelo Claire from Sprint and had them pre-install the app on millions of phones that were shipped out. <laughs> and so like, I just think that it's such an elegant way of thinking. And I've seen at the highest levels of entrepreneurship, it's this ability to think in multiplication, not addition. And so I started searching all the topic and then you're book was one of the first ones that came up. So uh, we have entrepreneurs from all ends of the spectrum listening, people that are super experienced and people that have, uh, you know, successful businesses and people that are considering partnerships or maybe haven't thought of partnerships. So I'd love for you to start by talking a little bit more about the importance of partnerships and specifically what your experience has been with why partnering with elephants, quote unquote, and maybe tell them about what that is. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm very passionate about partnerships. And one of the first companies I worked for was a company called uh, Crystal Decisions. Uh, makers of a report writer called Crystal Reports. And just about the case as with every small startup company is you don't have any brand. Nobody knows who you are. You don't have the six or seven, well, the seven figure marketing budget to go spend lots of money on advertising to go get well known or get known in the marketplace. So what can you do? So this was the case at Crystal Decisions. And uh, the management team, we brainstormed about what could we do to get known in the marketplace. And the idea was, well, let's create an OEM strategic partnership with big players like Microsoft or Borland. If we could get them to bundle our report writer with their product, we could leverage their brand and get a whole new awareness in the market, um, get distribution and access to customers. And if we could 
ride their coattails, so to speak, then we would have a great opportunity to do follow-on upgrade sales from there. Hmm. And so I think lots of people, when they think of partnerships, they might think about people that are kind of like of their size or maybe slightly bigger. But your approach has always been to approach the elephant in the room, you know, the big players and leverage their big brand. So if for somebody that may have been considering partnerships, like, oh, I'll reach out to somebody that's similar size, we can kind of share audiences. Why specifically do you encourage people to go after elephants? Well, it's a great question because the, the biggest mistake I see a lot of entrepreneurs making is that they go, well, it's easier to make a partnership with another small company. And, you know, generally that's true. It's, you know, maybe easier to get uh, the other person to answer your email or pick up the phone. But the truth is two small companies together, neither have any brand, neither have any customer awareness. And so kind of one plus one equals zero. Uh, but if you can find a big elephant, like when I talk about elephants, uh, I typically refer to companies that are billion dollars in annual revenue or larger. So these are like the biggest players in your space, in your market space. And they're the ones that have thousands, if not tens of thousands of customers. And so if you can find uh, some sort of strategic partnership with them, they will introduce you to their customer base. They will help you gain credibility and awareness in the marketplace. So a big part of what you're trying to do is gain that market visibility. Hmm. So I know somebody may be immediately thinking like, okay, what value do I have to add to a billion dollar brand? Um, you know, that's kind of crazy. But so, so I know you talk about this in the book, and I'd love for you to share kind of what both sides of the equation are, because this is something that you're really good at is identifying the win-win scenario on both ends of the spectrum. So what's in it for smaller companies? Well, actually, you kind of touched on it. You, you already touched a little bit about what's in it for the smaller companies is leveraging the brand equity and all the clout that an elephant may have. But for a large company, what do they have? Why would they partner with a smaller company? Well, first, let me tell you what it's not. Uh, a partnership, um, especially between a startup and a big elephant, is not a marriage of equals. And I think that's where a lot of people get kind of mixed up because they think, oh, partnership, like in relationships, uh, you know, it's equal, we'll share, we'll both be uh, happy because we're helping each other. But the truth is, when it's a startup partnering with the big elephant of the industry, uh, it's a different value exchange. So we've already talked about for the big elephant, it's all about access to their customer base. It's help with brand and market visibility. Uh, but what do you have to offer the elephant? Well, as a startup, probably the biggest thing you've got to offer is innovation. You're supposed to be small and nimble and able to figure out new business models, come up with new technologies, perhaps a new user interface. And so that's typically what the smaller company offers nimbleness and innovation to the value exchange. Yeah, I think that so many people forget, you know, you're so close to it that you forget that as a smaller company, you have that ability and that you don't even, I mean, obviously, if you're you're, you're pivoting and moving around all the place, right. all the place, like a traditional startup, it's kind of like the norm. <laughs> you forget that in a, in a bigger company, right. that that is something that is very, very valuable. So uh, thank you for sharing that. I, I would love to start maybe talking about the specific kinds of partnerships that you can be looking for in this. And you, in your book, you share kind of like a hierarchy of low value to high value partnerships. So I want to kind of start building this world for people and thinking about partnerships is just like what's potentially on the table. So maybe could you walk us through some examples of what like a lower level partnership could look like and at the highest end, what the most valuable partnerships would look like as we, as we go after these. Yeah. Well, I call it the partnership value pyramid. So, um, at the bottom, it's kind of where the masses, where you know everyone is trying to do the same thing. And at the very lowest level of that partnership pyramid is uh, marketing alliances. So sometimes called a Barney partnership. I love you, you love me. But there's <laughs> not really a lot of you know commitment either way, right? So I'll agree to a press release. You know, we'll you know say some nice things to each other. Maybe we'll put you know each other's logos on our website. Uh, maybe I'll join your marketplace, but you no, know, there's really not a whole lot of value because you really haven't, you know, done a lot of deep thinking about what the joint value proposition could be that would make you together better. So up from there might be some sort of lead sharing arrangement where you say, okay, yeah, we're going to get our sales teams cooperating. You know, if uh, you come across a certain opportunity where you're missing some capabilities or functionality we'll refer to you. And likewise, you know, if we find something, we'll refer it over to you. Um, above that, where it starts to get even more strategic is if you can agree and say, okay, we're going to be on your price list. So especially to the elephant who's got a big customer base, you know, if you can get on their price list um, so that their large sales force now has the capability 
uh, to sell your product and get fully commissioned on it, that starts to get really, really strategic. And often I refers to, to the top of that uh, partnership value pyramid as an OEM relationship where some part of your product is actually embedded uh, with every product of the elephants. And that's just, you know, guaranteed distribution of your product and guaranteed distribution in the marketplace. Hmm. I also just want to, before we move too much further, I want to qualify this in for people that it's like, you know, I think from partnering with a billion dollar company, I think lots of your experience come from the tech industry as well. But is it fair to say that you could also partner with like the biggest elephant in your space if you're in a completely different space that you could just go after the person that kind of has the biggest market share, the most trust um, that that would qualify as this this type of thinking just so we don't lose people? <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this isn't this is the same for any vertical, any industry. Um, you know, you can be in real estate, you can be in healthcare. Uh, there's always large dominant players. Like when you think of who are the big brands, if you say name some big real estate companies, well, what would be the names that come to mind? Big healthcare companies. What are the big names that come to mind? Well, they come to mind because they're the largest in the industry. They usually have billions of dollars of sales. They have spent a lot of money on advertising and marketing. And so, yeah, that same principle applies to uh, every vertical, to every industry. Yeah. Okay. So I, I love what you talk. I love the Barney. I love you. You love me at the bottom. I, I actually, one of my favorite books, have you read the book Integration Marketing by Mark Joyner or heard of it? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a relatively lesser known uh, book, but it's just, I, I love hearing other ways of thinking about the, the value of a particular partnership right. because in Integration Marketing, he talks about kind of the, I love you, you love me being at the bottom of the rung and at the top, it's the same thing. So similar framework, similar way of dissecting it. It's just always good to hear it. Uh, said in a different way. So I appreciate that. I would love to layer on an additional part on top of all of this. And one of the other things you share in the book is, is Moore's framework about core and context activities as being a way of thinking about how you can think about partnerships. So I would love for you to share a little bit about that as well. Well, Jeffrey Moore has been a, a very influential um, thinker for not only me, but for many people. And I had the good fortune that uh, early um, in my career at Crystal Decisions, we actually brought in Jeffrey Moore as a consultant and he would meet once a quarter with our management team and he'd help us with our strategies of how do we go out and, and uh, create this new marketplace for um, report writers, which, wasn't, which was a new topic at that time. And um, so with Jeffrey Moore, um, later on other books uh, beyond Crossing the Chasm, he talked about in his later books about core and context. And I think that core and context is a really helpful uh, framework to think about when you're evaluating partnerships and who to partner with. So uh, you can't do everything well or perfectly. So what is it that's really core and strategic to your business? And what are the things that are context around that core element? Um, and then that helps you get better definition on who should be the critical partners in your ecosystem that can really help you create a whole product better and faster. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is exactly where you were. I, I, I put the quote down from Zuckerberg. In a world that's changing so quickly, the biggest risk you can take is not taking any risk. I just wanted to make sure that I put that out there before we go much further too, because I think that's just another thing to think about. It's like, you could be thinking about, oh, all the different things that, all the different layers of complexity with partnerships. But I think that there's another reason why I would encourage you listening to this right now is just to think about it from the perspective of you could get left very well left behind <laughs> if you're not thinking about in terms of multiplication and uh, by adding the those, these additional layers that we're talking about is like, what are your core competencies? What are the more context-based ones? And how can you do a kind of a Dan Sullivan, Benjamin Hardy, who not how thinking on the whole thing instead of trying to do everything on your own? It's something that I'm challenging myself to think about more in terms of multiplication instead of addition, like I said before. So um, let's keep building. I think we got, there's lots of lots of different layers to this. So another thing that I loved is you explain well, in the Brandon, book about- Brandon, if yeah. I could just maybe add to that previous concept. Yeah, please uh, do. You know, um, you, you talk about that uh, Mark Zuckerberg quote, and um, I think the concept of getting left behind. So uh, in my book, I talk about it, but the whole concept, I get asked a lot about when's the right time to start a partnership. And a lot of times I hear from CEOs, they say, well, I'm, I'm too small to partner with the big guy. I want to wait till I'm bigger, till I'm 100 million, 200 million dollars in sales. And I'm like, well, no. Uh, if you wait till you're that size, I guarantee you that one of your competitors will have already locked up a strategic partnerships with one of the elephants in your industry. So the right time to start is now. 
um, because it, it, typically with a strategic partnership, the elephant's not going to have multiple strategic partnerships. They're going to pinpoint you know one specific partner for this particular area and you want to make sure you're that chosen one for that specific area yeah and and i think it was another part that i that i made sure that i highlighted it was like you're not losing the deal just once because you're also losing it when the competitor scoops it up exactly. so it's like you're getting you're getting slapped twice <laughs> essentially slapped for the twice. Same mistake. you didn't get the deal and your competitor got the deal it's it's a double whammy for sure yeah. Okay. So let's start segue digging, segueing into how do we go from, okay, this is a cool concept to like, how do we actually start making this a reality? So um, I know you kind of walk people through, or at least in the book, you talk about like, it starts with just kind of a whiteboard exercise. So kind of walk us through, let's say somebody's interested, what are some of the first steps that they can start taking to start identifying and thinking about um, who we should be reaching out to and building these relationships with? Yeah. Well, one of the most fun exercises I love doing with uh, management teams is, uh, I, I call it the top 10 or top 20 uh, dream partner exercise. So if you kind of put away, you know, all reality for a moment and you're just a brainstorm, uh, who would be the top 10 or the top 20 most desirable partners? If you could wave a magic wand and poof, they'd be your strategic partners tomorrow, who would it be? Um, and the way you get to that list is you can just throw some names on the board, um, but then I like to do kind of a prioritization and a ranking. And the way you do that is you try to give some sort of assessment for each one of those names that you put on the on the spreadsheet or on the board. You, you answer three questions. On a scale of one to 10, how valuable would that partnership be to us? Well, obviously if they're your top 10 or top 20 list, probably pretty high. But here's the next question. On a scale of one to 10, realistically, how much value do we bring to them? Okay, um, so you really think about, well, you know, they got a gap in this particular area that we're experts in, or they really need some help, you know, in this particular area. We've got some innovative concepts. We're pretty far the mark, ahead of the market on this thing here. Um, so that's the assessment on a one to 10 scale of how much value do we bring to them. And then the third dimension is on a scale of one to 10, how difficult would it be to do this deal where 10 is like impossible because they just bought your competitor last week. Uh, to one, we've already got relationships at the board level and, you know, it's we have a pretty clear pathway to uh, to how to get to a deal. And then you sort that and then you come up with this draft top 10 or top 20 list that gives you a framework for, you know, who should you be spending your time to go pursue? Mm hmm. I love that. And I, I love me a good spreadsheet. So I can I can already see what that looks like. You got the three columns at the top, the value the elephant brings to you, how much value you bring to them and how difficult will it be to execute the partnership. And then you can do a nice little sum on the side and then rank the order based on the, the, the total there. So um, that is that is awesome. And I love the the that immediately sorts um, and makes it so much easier to think about who where you should even start. It goes to a really daunting thing to something much simpler. So love that. So let's say, okay, we have this list of top 10 people. Now within that, it's like if we're talking especially about an elephant, there's a bajillion people we could contact within that organization. So how do you narrow down once you found out, okay, these are some of the, let's just say top three or top five that we're going after. Where do you start looking for who to actually have the conversation with? Right. Well, that that's a really critical question. So when you did that top 10 exercise, uh, part of that thinking of what value do we bring to them in a billion dollar company, it's going to have multiple divisions, multiple different product lines. So as part of that brainstorming exercise, uh, you come up with some ideas of which division would we bring value to? Which product group would we bring value to? And then once you know that, that helps kind of narrow the field down a little bit. So now you're looking for someone in that particular division. Uh, ideally, be the, the head or GM of that division. But maybe it's a product manager who has responsibility for that particular product or that solution area. Um, it's almost never makes sense to start with a partner organization. And this is maybe a little bit counterintuitive. But... In very large organizations, the partner organization is often kind of the gatekeepers. They're trying to provide some order and semblance and get everybody lined up uh, into some sort of organizational, uh, organizational structure that they can better prioritize with. But if you're talking about a strategic partnership, that's typically someone on the product or the business level side. Um, because again, you're looking for a strategic partnership, which usually means that they're only going to pick one of you for that particular space. Mm. And 
let's is it a bad idea to reach out to multiple people within the same organization or how do you approach that like would you yeah, know you, you're, you're throwing spaghetti or... see whatever sticks so you know uh you know there's definitely uh more effective ways you want to have a tightly crafted message shows that you've done your homework and you know kind of what what the potential fit and value proposition might be um but yeah you're trying multiple different places because you don't know who's going to respond or who might have a particular pain point at that moment in time and you're taking a portfolio approach. You're not just working on um, number one potential partner. That's why you take a portfolio approach of top 10 or top 20. Uh, you, you're trying to work uh, multiple partners at the same time and have multiple irons in the fire because you don't know um, what's going to bear fruit. Yeah. So I want to zoom in here just a little bit. I, and I know this might be a little bit of a difficult question to ask because you've, you've sent lots of these emails for lots of partnerships. But can you think of like a specific example of a pitch that worked really well? Like kind of what the value was that you added, how you worded it, and some of the the just I, I'm looking for maybe something concrete where somebody can go from, okay, I should be reaching out to like, okay, this is something that's actually worked before um, and they can kind of model it. Yeah, well, I can tell you what it's not. It's not a one, two, three page, extremely lengthy <laughs> and you're yeah. telling your life story. Never works. Everyone's busy. Nobody has time. So what you're looking for is probably a sweet spot of, you know, two or three or four sentences uh, that kind of hit straight to the, the, to, to the heart of what you have to offer. So, you know, here's what we do better than anybody else. Here's what we think we could add value to your specific division or product. Uh, could we get 30 minutes of your time just to uh, pass an initial sniff test of whether there's a potential fit here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A few things I just want to highlight there too. It just my experience for reaching out and building relationships with people. It's like one, I always try to connect with the the human at the beginning too. It's like, if you can make a comment about like the actual person you're connecting with, if you can find some information about them, I always think that that helps to connect a little bit. But then my, my general framework is like, how do I connect with the, the human? How do I provide an irresistible offer? And then how do I have a clear call to action at the very end and end with a question, kind of like what you just mentioned. There's no question that it's about the next step being getting, getting a next call or figuring out the next step. Because if you kind of bury the question at the top of the email or in the middle of the email, it makes it even, even harder for it to stand out so well exactly uh, i mean the the call to action has to be very clear and it's simple can i have a 30 minute meeting to uh you know to pitch what we've got here to yeah. explore to see if there's some mutual interest here so 30 minutes that that's a pretty easy decision for them okay did i see enough in this email that caught my interest that I, this is worth 30 minutes to to take an initial look to see if this uh might be of interest yeah. So also on this topic, I just want to kind of give people an understanding of like what they could potentially expect at this point in the game. I know it's still pretty early in the game, but you highlighted some of these in the book. And I think it's just kind of good for people to understand. You talk about sometimes the timing is wrong. Um, so I'd love for you to maybe share a little bit about like what people can expect if, if the timing is wrong or some of the ways that you would kind of handle approaching different scenarios in which um, it may not be the optimal time to reach out or there's a better person to reach out to. Um, just kind of some additional tips on, on this subject of making sure that you're getting in at the right time. Well, you don't know what their timing is. So that's why, you know, I suggest and recommend a portfolio approach. Um, I can't guarantee I'm going to get a response from any one particular vendor. But if I'm reaching out to five or 10 right. vendors, then there's a pretty good chance that somebody on that list is going to respond to. And by the way, what I found is once you have success with one vendor, uh, and if you have that initial conversation with them, usually it will tune up your pitch pretty good where you now know uh, some keywords, some maybe how to make that, that initial message even harder hitting. So when you go back to the ones that didn't respond, you have a more compelling message to tell. Yeah. And um, also, I know like you talked a little bit about um, how the, the, the best number of partnerships to have is anything but one, right? So can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because I'm sure that has to factor in if you already have other partnerships going on, when you're reaching out to other partners to add on top of it, it makes, makes it even more appealing. Well, when you're dancing with an elephant, you know, it, it's obviously things are out of proportion, you know, and, and the byline of the book is how to partner with industry titans without getting crushed. And so how do you not get crushed? Well, if it's just one partner, only one strategic partner that you've got in your portfolio, well, your dynamics are, are the power dynamics are way off. You know, they're a multi-billion dollar company. They got tons of resources and, you know, you're, 
you got maybe a, a year of runway before you have to raise more financing. So you have a lot more pressure. Uh, but if, you know, I have two or three uh, strategic partnerships uh, with elephants that are also competitors to each other, that helps keep the, the power dynamic and balance uh, at a better equilibrium for you. Mm -hmm. Love that. So let's let's say you send that email, you get their attention, they get the, the you get on the first call. Can you walk us through a little bit about what the, what it's like in the early stages of those first conversations? What are we trying to accomplish, and uh, maybe some tips for having those conversations? Right. Well, so you know, if if you've gotten thirty minutes, you know, uh, if you got more, great. But let's say it's it's pretty tight. You got a pretty tight little window of thirty minutes. And I call it passing the sniff test. It's not to educate them about every detail of your company. It's just to convey enough that you've captured their interest, that there's something that merits going to the next level, you know, to, to scheduling a, a follow-up meeting that's more time, perhaps an hour, an hour and a half in a follow-up meeting where that person might bring in other people from their team and take a more meaningful look. So what do you got to get accomplished in that 30 minutes? Um, you're going to have to do a brief um, explanation of who you are. Um, and you're going to share some of your ideas about how you think in their world, in their terms, um, in their language, how can you add value? So you hopefully you're able to, you've done your homework so you can convey that you understand some of the pain points that that person is feeling in their industry and in their job, and that you have some ideas that are compelling. And ultimately, at the end, I, I always want to make sure that even if you got 30 minutes, let's make sure you, you're done, you're presenting in 10 or 15 minutes, and you got 15 minutes ideally left to ask questions. You know, what did you like? Did there, what resonated from what we talked about? You know, would you agree that that's a pretty big industry issue or pain point that you guys are feeling? What's a priority for you guys to address? So you want to be making sure that you're learning because if you're doing all the talking, you're not going to learn anything and you're not going to get any smarter for the next presentation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, love that. You can kind of keep going behind like optimizing the initial pitch, optimizing, I mean, I should say the email specifically, and then optimizing the conversation that you're having with them. And then as you kind of go through a few of these cycles, you'll probably pick up on, you know, maybe you were on the right track or you weren't on the wrong track, but or right. It's always going to get better. You know, there's, right. there's never been a time where, you know, you go in and you talk to this billion dollar company because they've got huge marketing research departments. They pay a lot of money for analysts. Uh, they have a large customer base that they, they survey and they talk to often. So they're always going to have a perspective um, that's helpful to you to, to, you know, to refine your thinking on the market. And uh, ultimately, in a strategic partnership, you have to be figuring out what which of their problems you can help solve. Mm hmm. So you go from this 30-minute conversation, the end goal of that conversation is to get some more time, ideally with more partners involved or more people that could actually help you make a decision. I'm assuming you kind of go back and forth between that a little bit and then eventually it comes time to say, hey, let's move forward with this. And that's when the contract comes. So is there is there any is that a high-level summary? Is there anything else you want to add there? Because I would love to talk about some of the pitfalls that you've identified from once you actually start having a deal in place, what those are. But before we get to that, is there anything that you wanted to fill in there? No, I think you're asking questions, you know, really trying to learn what's important and strategic for them. You know, every big company has their strategy that's, you know, worked out at the top levels. And you want to make sure you're fitting in and dovetailing with some key strategy of the company. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just not going to have enough that's, uh, you know, viable to them. Right. Okay. So this is where we start getting into some of the fun parts because I would love to tap into your collective experience of some of the big boo-boos, some of the big no-nos. <laughs> once you get to this point, which congratulations, once you got to this point, obviously it's really, really exciting. But um, you know, this is where I would assume at the same point that the, the lawyers are coming out, it gets really long and probably expensive. And like, there's like these foundational concepts that need to be discussed and they can create issues later on. So um, I, I know that one of them that you specifically talk about is the concept of I, or the topic of IP, like who owns what IP and how do you negotiate about that? So we'd love for you to talk a little bit about once we're having this point of the conversation, how do we make sure that we're protecting our IP moving forward? Well, for a technology company, uh, you're in the business, you know, especially for software, which is where most of my experience is. Um, you develop software uh, to sell as a product, which means you build it once and you sell it multiple times to many different customers. 
What you want to avoid is that you turn into some sort of custom development shop building custom solutions for one big elephant. That's not a product. You just become a you know outsourced development shop, and uh, so that doesn't get you you know um, you know the, the valuations and the leverage that you're looking to create. Yeah, and then obviously, actually let's let's go back a little bit here because I know one of the concerns that people might have in partnering with an elephant is that, or, or a, let's just say an elephant or like a bigger company that you kind of share the IP and they can kind of rip it off and run with it, um, you know, because you're the smaller guy. So how do you help people kind of handle that concern in their head? Well, you know, I, I hear that concern a lot, but honestly, I don't think that should be your biggest concern. Uh, you know, for most companies, if the problem is lack of brand awareness, it's how to win more customers, it's how to grow revenue. And so you're partnering, you're creating the strategic partnership because you hope that this partner can uh, provide you market credibility, create some brand awareness, provide some access to their customer base. So you have to take some chances. In exchange, you're providing innovation. And um, as a small company, I would sure hope that you can pedal a lot faster on your bike than the big elephant can. And so, um, yeah, maybe you're not going to show everything in the very first meeting, but um, you have to show enough innovation to be able to capture their interest and convince them that it's worth working with you as a partner. Keep in mind for the big elephant, it's a risk working for a smaller company. You might go out of business. You might not have the resources to keep up with them. You might not have thought through as robustly as needed uh, how to handle security or scalability or these kinds of questions. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a give and get relationship and you definitely have to be uh, leading the way on innovation. Mm-hmm. I think I saw earlier or from, from my notes as well, it was like you could also, they, they very male, they, the, the elephants very may want to actually develop the product that you're talking about, but it's not a very high priority for them. And that by partnering with you, they'll actually probably get it done a lot faster than the hundred first thing on their to-do list. <laughs> well, exactly. And, you know, uh, that's the core and context from Jeffrey Moore that we spoke about. I mean, right. if it's core to them, they're not likely going to partner on it. They're only going to partner um, if they're way behind the market and they don't feel like they can build it fast enough. Usually for a big company, it's going to take them at least a couple of years uh, to go from start to launch of a, the first beta of a, of a new product. So they make the calculation that, okay, together with this innovative young startup, we're going to get to market a whole lot faster. We can get to market, say, in six months versus two years. And what advantages, what advantages does that give us uh, over our competition and as a general head start in the market? Mm-hmm. So we keep going on this deal and the elephant eventually says to us, okay, so we want exclusivity on this deal and you can't, you can't be doing anything else with anybody else. What do you say at that point? Well, that, that's, uh, that's one of my biggest pet peeves. I mean, I think to agree to exclusive is, again, just turning you into a custom development house. That's not a product company. Um, you know, is an independent software vendor, if you're a software company or, you know, if you're a product company, Again, it's about building a product once and selling it the same thing multiple times to multiple different customers. If it's an exclusive relationship, your hands are tied behind your back. You just can't do that scaling part that you need to do that's critical to uh, growing your business. So, um, you know, doing an exclusive just doesn't make any sense for, for a small company. Mm-hmm. And if you let's say they're not like budging on that. I think you talk a little bit about like time delay exclusive or some, some other ways to handle it. So like, what are some of the options if they're not moving on what their, their desired exclusivity? Well, first I just try to explain. It's like, it's in their best interest to make sure that we don't become dependent on them just, you know, as our sole source of revenue. Um, So they, they have a vested interest to make sure that we're also an independent viable company. But, you know, if it gets, I have seen it where, you know, it's like, okay, well, we need something, you know, I'll say, okay, well, then let's, let's have a modest three, four, five, six month head start. We'll agree perhaps just not to partner with a very small list of, uh, you know, your, your most, you know, most direct competitors. So it's, it's really kind of narrowed into kind of a very specific small time window for a very specific narrow set of direct most direct competitors for them. Yeah. 
And I, this is kind of on a similar topic, but white labeling, I, I would assume that's kind of like a version, I don't know, maybe it's, it's, just, it's related in my head. So what, what is your opinions on white labeling a product if, you, if, they were, if that was kind of part of the discussion? Well, white labeling is where you're offering your solution, your product, your software, and then they're stripping your brand completely from that product and they're just putting their name on it. Well, um, that's not so great because the whole reason that you, you entered into the strategic partnering strategy is because you don't have a brand and you're trying to uh, get some leverage by partnering with a, an elephant that does have a lot of market awareness and a lot of brand. So the only way that you can attach yourself to that brand is there is some mention of your, your company and your product name um, in that offering that the elephant is taken to market. So even if it's powered by your company name, you know, there has to be some association. There has to be some awareness uh, and ability for the customers uh, to know, oh, this is that startup company. And so that's how you grow in your brand awareness. So if you give away that capability by agreeing to white to a white label relationship, uh, you've just negated all those potential benefits of brand awareness. Right. I would assume that when you put together the spreadsheet to begin with, <laughs> that wasn't your vision for, for that. So uh, obviously a good thing to consider or to, to make sure you're avoiding. Um, one other you know, thing on this you, topic. And you might decide at the end of the day, if it's, you know, in the hundreds of deals I've done, there have been, you know, a couple of times where they're like, this is our business strategy. And then so I guess it's a take it or leave it situation. And, and you can assess that. But generally speaking, um, it's it's usually something that you can negotiate and get some sort of brand uh, attachment. Yeah. The, one more top, one more thing on this topic of kind of like what to look out for as you're kind of negotiating these different things. And I, I absolutely hate reading through contracts. That's why <laughs> it's not, not my thing, but I always like to know high level, like what I should be trying to avoid or be looking out for. And another one that I highlighted that, that you kind of mentioned is who's taking on liability, um, you know, in the, in the event that things go wrong. And sometimes you can be pushed into taking on too much of the liability. So would you mind sharing a little bit about how you encourage people to mitigate that risk? Well, the first thing that I would uh, highly, highly recommend is that uh, you need the expert advice of a uh, of a very experienced licensing lawyer. Like so in the case of the software world, uh, someone who a lawyer who's experienced specifically with doing OEM or reseller licenses uh, with large enterprise companies that you're dealing with. And um, so that just has huge advantage because not only well, they know how to go toe to toe with the lawyers from the elephant uh, organization, but they also uh, will be able to give you good business advice to say kind of here's here's the parameters, you know, that you should be looking at. Here's kind of the practical business advice about where's reasonable places to give, you know, what are the, the risks to avoid? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And often, um, uh you know, one of the goals for a startup might be to create pathways to exit. So this strategic partnership that you create might be a potential uh, acquirer of your company. And so you want to make sure or one of their competitors might be a potential acquirer. So you want to make sure you got things buttoned down correctly so that um, you get to that point where you do have a suitor who's interested in buying you uh, these strategic partnership contracts that you have there. Uh, a plus, uh, not a negative to, uh, to doing a deal. Yeah. Love that. So what I'd love to do right now, let's, let's zoom back out and then we'll zoom back in. So we, so at a high level, we've decided that it's, you know, it's, it's a brilliant strategy for us to part, make some kind of partnerships with some high level people. We see the huge benefits of doing that. We pull out a spreadsheet. We're evaluating the value we bring to them, the value they bring to us and how feasible it is. We find someone, we pitch them, we have that first meeting. It goes well. We have a few more meetings. We get this contract and then we finally get to actually do what we, what the, what the actual partnership is. And, and that's the one thing that I love about your book is that you you highlight all these different components, but also it's like once the deal is inked, how do you actually make sure that you are having an effective partnership and what are some of the things to look out for once you actually have it done so that they'll want to continue working with you and you can make this repeatable. So um, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the things to expect once you uh, sign this agreement. So, um, and, and maybe how to avoid some of the mistakes. So um, one of the ones I highlighted was dealing with partner letdown. Maybe this isn't the best one to start with, <laughs> but inevitably I'm sure there's going to be stuff that like you had to put it in a contract, you had to talk about it, you're excited 
excited. You have to make these projections, um, but there's going to be some points eventually where you have to have conversations. So what are some of the ways that you uh, encourage people to think about effectively communicating with your partners or ha handling situations in which you, know, you may have to uh, adjust some of the expectations or things didn't go as well as they needed to go? Wow. Okay. Well, I can think of a couple of things there. So the first is um, there's definitely um, excitement in the beginning and hopefully a lot of excitement because if it's a pretty complicated and tough negotiation and contracting phase, um, you know, you might have to kind of re resurface some of the energy and get back to some of the positive elements of the deal. Sure. I mean, they're not always super tough negotiation, but sometimes, yeah, they're a bit bruising. And so it's kind of like you get to the other side and it's like, okay, let's, let's get back to how we build business together and, and you know, why we entered into this partnership in the first place. Um, the second thing that you made me think of is that um, almost inevitably um, things don't go according to plan. You know, something changes, you know, the market changes, competitive factors change. Uh, delays in product uh, slip either on your side or on your uh, partner's side. Um, maybe new requirements came under the table. Um, and so no matter how well you plan, there's some changes I think are inevitable. And so um, agility and, um, and, and being ready for those changes I think is really important. Also keeping in mind that difference in, in the size of organizations you know if you're a startup and you're 50 people 100 people 200 people and you're dealing with a, a billion dollar organization that has five or ten thousand employees um just the decision making process communication process the number of people that are involved it's pretty different so it definitely takes some patience um to be able to kind of meet in the middle or find that place where you're able to communicate effectively and get stuff done uh, usually I'm always trying to nurture some champion, you know, who is usually the, the person who got it started in the first place. And I can go back to if I'm having a hard time or I'm getting stuck or there's some personality conflicts that are going on. And I can go back to that sponsor to help them kind of free things up and get things unstuck. Yeah, the, actually, that that is a, another topic that I wanted to make sure we covered is like you talked about developing relationships with internal champions. And one of the things that could potentially happen is like your internal champion switches jobs or they move to a different department. So can you talk a little bit about how you can handle those situations or what you can do to prevent losing an internal champion? Yeah, so, um, you know, building relationships. So kind of, you know, spreading your tentacles within the larger organization uh, developing as many positive champions for the partnership as you can. Uh, so kind of depth and breadth. And uh, the breadth, I think, is pretty important because maybe you started just with one or two champions. Now that the deal is done, you're trying to go and build broader relationships. You know, maybe even turn around some of the people that were against the partnership or at least being able to try to mitigate or minimize uh, the impacts from some of the naysayers uh, who are potentially against the deal in the first place because they wanted to build it themselves or do it themselves. So how can you try and get some of those people on board? Um, so yeah, broadening the relationship so you're not just dependent on you know one person because like you said, uh, that person can leave, they can uh, change, have a change of jobs, move to a different department. And so um, what, what do you have left to work with? Yeah. Very valuable insight because it's one of those things where it's like I can just – I haven't done many big-scale partnerships outside of some of the smaller maybe Barney partnerships that you've talked about in the last – last but uh, in the last segment. But um, I can see, you know, if you lose that clout inside of the organization – you know, it's like even if you started with a smaller partnership, ascending to a bigger partnership could could be depending on those some of those relationships. So as long you need to be aware that you should be proactively developing more relationships and so that you're not um, depending on that one key person. Otherwise, you're kind of screwed. So, you know, um, one of the other things you just remind me of, Brandon, is um, uh, very important to have an executive check in. So, you know, there's the people kind of the day to day level, you know, and you're doing the project management stuff and you're having daily, if you know, weekly, if not daily meetings. Um, and it's really important, I think, to reengage with the executives, maybe the ones who uh, ended up either signing off on the deal or they're the budget holders 
and at least once a quarter be able to have a check-in with them. You know, how are things going? What are they hearing? Where can the relationship be improved and so forth? And I think that's really important in order to make sure that uh, the you're getting the feedback early enough so that if, if some course corrections are required, you can do them before things go way off track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really key stuff. Um, one one other thing I wanted to add in in this section about uh, managing partnerships, and I know we got just a few more minutes left here, but um, I thought this was really cool that you had this you had this story about turning problems into opportunities, and you talked about how there was a situation earlier in your career where you learned this about when you were a technical support department. So let's say you know you have you have something kind of going a little bit wrong, but um, there's some there's some gold here. So I would love for you to share the story about how you discovered that that you can turn problems into opportunities and what people can do in the event that that happens? Well, um, I, you know, at the end of the day, problems do happen. And uh, so it's about trying your best to listen and not get defensive. Sometimes it gets complicated because maybe they're pointing the fingers at you and that doesn't feel fair. But I think trying to be forward looking towards casting a common vision of where we want to get to uh, so that you can move forward as opposed to be stuck uh, finger pointing of who did what in the past that didn't work out well. Yeah, I think specifically there was a story that you told that I, I would love for you to share. It's like you were working in customer support and you realized that the tickets that 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 you had a huge opportunity to turn things around when there actually oh. was something. Would you mind sharing that a little bit? Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think the story that you're referring to is that uh, you know when I was at Crystal Decisions, um, it was it was a large tech support team and often. Uh, there were way too few tech support people relative to the volume of calls that were coming in. And um, one of the things we realized is that actually, ironically, you have to have kind of almost a big failure before you can really get to the five out of five on the satisfaction scale. It's hard to get to five out of five if you didn't have some problem uh, that you had an opportunity to resolve and fix. So I guess... The moral of the story is, you know, even if something's, you know, a pretty big problem or pretty messed up, the opportunity is that if you can solve it, you can move that person from kind of mediocre three or four to five to getting them to, you know, raving um, happy about the company and, and a huge fan of the company. Yeah. So let's kind of put a bow on this and kind of tie it all together. And I know I don't. I think you were involved with this deal specifically, but you did give the example of Uber in the earlier days. One of the big partnerships that they made was Google with their with their maps and that kind of stuff. So I would love for you to maybe share uh, maybe an example like that or like some of your favorite deals that you've seen kind of really multiply opportunities so that people can kind of like just kind of see big picture about how you've been able to make all this happen. Well, you know, uh, I think of the example of swing to the next partnership vine. So um, the very early deal of Crystal Ports uh, bundled in with Microsoft Visual Basic, you know, that was a hugely successful deal in and of itself. But we didn't stop there. We looked for what other product divisions within Microsoft that we could leverage that success we had so that we were growing within the company. So um, uh, finding that next partnership vine it could be a swing from one vine to the next vine within the large company. Um, and, but it also can be using it as leverage to open up the relationship with the next elephant because you've now got instant credibility. You know, if you've partnered with Microsoft, well, now suddenly you're of interest uh, potentially to, uh, to Google or to SAP or to many other Amazon, to other companies that also see, okay, there must be something that these guys do that's unique and valuable. Otherwise, um, that large company wouldn't have partnered with them in the first place. Yeah, 100 percent. So cool. So let's just let's I have one more kind of like high level, like kind of thing I didn't even know existed until I read your book that I'd love to talk about. Then we kind of wrap things up. Partnership ecosystem. So kind of once you get your foot in the door with a partner, what are some of the next level opportunities that you have once you develop that first relationship? Well, partnership ecosystem means that you don't think of it in just terms of one partner. Um, you think of it in terms of an ecosystem of partners. And it's typically different kinds of partners depending on what you need. So you might have some uh, technical some technical integration partnerships that uh, help you expand your solution by making a broader solution and uh, making sure there's the right technical integrations uh, to, to connect to a, a broader uh, platform of solutions. Uh, there might be uh, uh, services partners that help you implement your partner, um, global system integrator partnerships, the likes of uh, Accenture and Capgemini that are 
uh, thought leaders or influencers at the C-level. So there's understanding that ecosystem is looking at the big picture of who are all the different potential kinds of partners uh, that would have a really big impact on your offering in the marketplace. And then within each of those categories, who's the top five, 10 that would be the biggest players or really have the most impact for us in that particular category. So that's referred to as uh, an ecosystem of partners. Usually the most, all the most successful companies uh, without exception are companies that have really thought a lot about how to build their ecosystem of partnerships to create a lot more value for customers. Yeah. I think about that, that that made me think so much about like even just this podcast. It's like I know I have incredible guests on the show that need to meet other incredible guests that I have on the show. I know p- people like you like getting on other podcasts. I'm getting on other podcasts. So it's like how can you think about in your business and the activities that you have that you can take the existing resources that you already have and combine them in a way that actually adds even more value from kind of everything that you've already just been doing. So that was a great reminder for me to be thinking about that. Um, I always try to make connections that make sense between the, the guests that come on my show. But Um, I think developing systems and structures and being more um, mindful of specifically creating an ecosystem and what that would look like um, is uh, really powerful. So I appreciate that. Um, Mark, the the last question that I kind of like to ask in conclusion, and um, I know it's kind of not related to anything that we were talking about today, but you you have lots of experiences. You've experienced lots of really cool things in the business world. But I always like to kind of bring to us to like one point that kind of brings all the guests together. And I would love for you to maybe share a little bit about what your understanding of happiness is today. What does happiness mean to Mark? It could be a high level theory or just what brings you happiness on a day to day basis after we get out of this call, uh, what you enjoy doing. So we'd love for you to share a little bit about what happiness means to you, Mark? Wow. Well, uh, I guess I'll, I'll answer the question in two parts. I'll, I'll answer it for uh, uh, professionally and personally. So professionally, sure. uh, what I really makes me happy is knowing when you've made a difference, you know, when you've added value, when you've uh, helped solve some problem, you know, when you know that you're, you're really making a difference um, because of the way you're approaching things and the relationships that you're building, the value that you're providing, that that's really what's uh, uh, satisfying and makes me happy in, in a business level. On a personal level, um, I like entertaining people. So I'm a bass player, I'm a musician, and I love performing, I love entertaining. If I see a lot of people on the dance floor, then I know that I'm really making a difference and making, <laughs> spreading and sharing that happiness. That makes me happy. Well, that's cool. And I, and I love the context. I can see you, I can see you playing a bass and making people dancing around and being really happy. So that was, that was really cool. So this has been an absolute blast. The last, last thing I want to say, even though I probably said last a few bajillion times is where can people find out more about the incredible stuff that you have going on and grab the book and do you want them to go to a site? Tell us a little bit about where they can find out about what you're up to. Sure. Well, I do uh, executive and CEO coaching and you can find out more about that at ceoquest.com. And if you're interested in strategic partnering, uh, recommend picking up a copy of The Art of Strategic Partnering, Dancing with Elephants. Um, It's uh, on Amazon. You can get it in uh, paperback form, Kindle form. And I also very much enjoyed narrating it uh, in the sound studio for an audible version. You have the nice radio voice. And I will say just to everyone too, it's like I, I took 20 plus pages of notes on this. So if you've enjoyed what you heard today, this was absolutely just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the insights. Uh, if you want to avoid some of the pitfalls and then know just what's what's to come once you start developing these kinds of relationships and all of the points that we covered was just the surface level, you can go a lot deeper. So and I'll just want to conclude by having a conversation with our friend listening right now. And that is if you are brand new, I want to say welcome It's so awesome to have you here today and you could be anywhere else, but you decided to be listening about partnerships and how you can create multiplicative opportunities. And so I'm so excited that you're here. And if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And the one ask that I have for every single time at the end of every episode is if you've heard something that has impacted you today, maybe it was just your eyes opening about what's possible about that you can partner with elephants or you can partner with some of the bigger people in your space and uh, that there's uh, people out there like Mark that teach you how to do this kind of stuff and some of the pitfalls to avoid, how to think about it, how to make it much less scary. It's not very scary if your very first step is just to create a spreadsheet of some of the people that you want to reach out to. So you can absolutely start with that today. Um, So you can share this with somebody. It'll absolutely make my day. It'll make Mark's day. Uh, But whether you choose to do that or not, I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And Mark, thank you so much for being here. Any final things you want to say before we head out today? Uh, Thank you so much, Brandon. It's been a lot of fun. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now, 
and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.